Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 605 for the 12th of August, 2018. This week, although GoodSync isn't designed to create a disk image or to back up the computer's operating system, it is a most capable and adaptable tool for backing up or synchronizing files and folders. In short circuits, Microsoft appears to be preparing to charge enterprise clients a monthly fee for maintaining the Windows 10 operating system so maybe you're wondering if this will someday apply to home users too. There's no shortage of ebook readers, so people who are new to reading books on electronic devices should experiment with several of them. I'll tell you about my favorite and why I prefer it. In spare parts only on the website, anyone who still wears a watch might be interested in a new one from Casio. And the company that acquired the Rand McNally name makes GPS devices and recently added a line of headphones for professional drivers. I tend to call GoodSync the Swiss Army knife of backup applications. But before going too far with that Swiss Army knife analogy, I do need to point out that there are a couple of tasks GoodSync cannot accomplish. You will not be able to use it to make an image copy of a disk or to back up the operating system. Given the application's other capabilities, though, those shortcomings don't matter. GoodSync can back up data files locally to a network drive, to another computer, or to an online service. There is a free version that'll probably convince you to spend 30 bucks for the full license. When you start GoodSync for the first time, you'll be asked if you want to connect to other computers or use it as a standalone program. If you choose to connect to other computers, you will need to sign up for GoodSync Connect. That's a free service, provides a foolproof way to connect your computers. If you skip that step initially, you can set it up later. So here's one use case for why it's a good idea to use GoodSync Connect. I use an online backup service for my primary computer. In addition to the computer's relatively small internal solid-state disk drive, there are five external hard drives, four for data and a fifth for immediate backups of working files. My wife takes a lot of pictures, they're on her computer, and I want those to be backed up. In the past, she used to bring me the camera's memory card so I could copy the files to one of the drives that does get backed up. The problem with that is that sometimes it was several weeks between download times, and of course any changes she made to files on her computer would not be backed up. GoodSync resolves that problem. On my computer, GoodSync runs as a server. There's also another licensed copy on her computer. It runs as a client. Once a day, GoodSync checks to see if there are any new photographs or any changed photographs on my wife's computer, and if so, it copies them to the data drive on my computer. From there, the files are backed up to an online server, a network-attached storage device, and once a week, 
two separate USB backup drives. Most of that work is handled by GoodSync. The free version of GoodSync is severely limited. You get a total of three jobs with no more than 100 files. So it's adequate for testing, but not much else. A job establishes the source of files that are to be backed up or synchronized, the location they'll be copied to, any rules that might be used to include or exclude specific files, whether the job will run automatically or manually, any scripts that might perform extra actions, and certain explicit conditions to be taken on source and destination locations. Creating a job starts with a name for the job and determining whether it'll be used to back up files from one location to another, in other words, one way, or to synchronize files on two devices whenever any change is made in either location. That's a two-way synchronization. After that, it's time to choose a connection type for each folder. The options range from disk or folder on the computer, GoodSync Connect, Windows Network Shares, FTP or Secure FTP, and a variety of online locations such as Google Drive, Amazon S3, Dropbox, Box, and more. Two of the most common choices are Network Shares and Folders on External Drives. Windows network shares are assigned drive letters by the operating system, but these can change. The same is true with USB drives. The backup job would break if the identity of the device changed, so GoodSync automatically looks for a name that won't change, or at least one that is less likely to change. For USB drives, GoodSync will suggest using the disk drive's volume name. For network drives, GoodSync will recommend using the Universal Naming Convention Path, or UNC. So instead of drive E on my computer, GoodSync will look for Websites Data 2. And instead of network drive Z, it will select a network name called ReadyShare USB Storage. Once you get that straightened out, you'll set various conditions in six panels for each job. The first tab is used to set whether the job will back up files or synchronize them, whether file deletions should be propagated, whether deleted or changed files should be sent to the recycle bin, and a few other less common settings. Next, the user sets filters to explicitly back up or exclude certain files. By default, all files in the specified directory will be backed up, but Users often want to exclude temporary files, lock files, and certain other files that actually have no value. That's easy to do with a filter. The third screen is for automation, and it is probably the most useful setup panel. For jobs that run with a USB drive that is usually not present on the computer, a manual job is the best option. However, backup jobs that involve network-attached storage, another user's computer, or an online system are generally good candidates for automation, and there are lots of choices for automation. Jobs can be run whenever GoodSync notices that a file has changed, either immediately or following a specific delay, when a disk that isn't always present is connected, when GoodSync starts, on a periodic schedule such as every two hours, or on an explicitly defined schedule. I've scheduled a few jobs, ones that deal with information I consider to be critical, to synchronize whenever a file changes. 
To avoid repeated backups during the time that a file is open, I often set a delay of 3,600 seconds. That's an hour, 60 minutes. Most of the automated jobs use a system that will immediately be familiar to anybody who has ever set up a cron job on a Linux or Unix system. Now don't let that scare you. GoodSync makes it easy to set up these jobs. And it offers a test function that displays exactly when the job will run using the parameters you've established. There are settings for minute, hour, day of week, day of month, and month. So if you want a job to run at 5.20 p.m. each day, you'd enter 20 in the minutes cell and 17 in the hours cell. 17 because we're using a 24-hour clock here and 17 is 5 p.m. Any cell that has no value defaults to the meaning of every. To narrow the run times further, you might enter a day of the week or a day of the month. Entering two for the day would limit the job to running only on Tuesday. Or entering 15 in the day of month cell would limit the job to running only on the 15th of each month. So that's the function I use for nearly all of my automated jobs. But that's not all. It is possible to use more than one automation function. In a few cases, a very few, I have a job run when a file changes and also on an explicit schedule every day. The final setup panels are not used as often. Advanced users can create scripts that run when certain conditions are met. For example, GoodSync could send an email if a job generates a certain number of errors or an email with a summary of the number of files backed up when a job runs. And the final two panels are identical, except that one applies to the source, the other to the destination. Both panels will have safe copy using temporary files turned on by default, and you'll probably want to leave that. And there are some other options for encryption and compression. I don't use either of those. Once you've set up your job and go back to the main panel, you'll find that the main panel displays a list of all defined jobs, and the display can be expanded to show a job's current status, whether it's analyzed, synced, or idle, for example. Selecting one of the jobs will display information on the top panel showing the source location, destination location, and whether it's a one-way or two-way job. Even if a job is automated, it can be run manually, and when it's time to run a job manually, just select the job, click the Analyze button. GoodSync will display the number of changed files and the number of files that need to be synchronized or copied. Depending on the number of files in the source and destination locations, that analysis may take just a few seconds or several minutes. When the analysis is complete, click the Sync button to start the process. You'll see a display that shows progress. On completion, the sync button dims and GoodSync will report any errors or any conflicts along with the files that have been successfully updated. Unlike most backup applications, GoodSync doesn't really have a restore process. That may seem strange. Files that have been backed up are in directories that are identical to their source directories. Files are not compressed or encrypted unless you specified that in the setup process. This means that files can simply be copied from the destination directory back to the source directory. And that, by the way, also explains why GoodSync doesn't create disk image backups or backup the operating system. If you connect one computer to another, you'll probably want to set up the automated job to run without the user interface. 
That allows it to run without bothering the person who's using the computer, as well as to run when the user is logged off. And using this function is best accomplished by using GoodSync Connect, but it can also be done with FTP or secure FTP connections. Given GoodSync Connect's advantages, that's the best option for me, and setting it up is easy. If you didn't set it up when you started GoodSync the first time, just select the Tools menu and then GoodSync Connect Setup. Select Yes on the first panel to move on to the next screen. There you'll need to fill in the ID of the computer you're on and your GoodSync Connect credentials. Now for the initial setup, you'll of course need to select the option to create a new account. GoodSync Connect is free. It handles only the process of establishing the secure connection between the two computers. The next screen requests the Windows username and password for your computer and then displays all of the settings. On the computer that will be backed up, you'll perform a similar set of steps using the GoodSync Connect account created for the computer that will receive the files. So the bottom line for GoodSync is five cats. GoodSync doesn't do disk imaging, but it does everything else so well that you might never notice. Despite the fact that GoodSync can't handle disk image backups, it is one of the most comprehensive file and folder backup applications for Windows and Mac computers. The ability to copy files from nearly any imaginable location to any other location is a plus, and automation makes it even better. A license for the first computer costs $30, the second $20, and after that $19 per computer for 3 through 29 machines. You can find additional information on the GoodSync website, and there's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. In short circuits, if you've been wondering when Microsoft would start charging a monthly fee for Windows, we might have the answer, but it is somewhat inconclusive. CNET is reporting that Microsoft will soon launch Microsoft Managed Desktop as a service that will help system administrators deal with configuration and update issues. In other words, it appears that the monthly fee for the service will apply only to corporate users, for now. Back in 2015, I tried to get a straight answer out of Microsoft on the cost of updates, and this is as close as I could get. Abby Smith at Wagner Edstrom Communications, Microsoft's public relations agency, said, and I quote, Once a qualified Windows device is upgraded to Windows 10, we will continue to keep it up to date for the supported lifetime of the device keeping it more secure and introducing new features and functionality over time at no cost. Windows 10 at that time was being positioned as an operating system that would be paid for once when the computer user purchased the computer and that all future updates would be provided at no cost as long as the computer was owned by the original purchaser and was still in service. But note the weasel words in the statement. We will continue to keep it up to date for the supported lifetime of the device. Supported lifetime can mean just about anything Microsoft wants it to. 
And yet the managed desktop service seems to be aimed at enterprise users, at least as far as the few murky details that have slipped out suggest. CNET's Mary Jo Foley says that Microsoft's former director of the Windows Insider program is now part of the enterprise mobility and management team that will be running the managed desktop program. She also notes that Microsoft has the processes in place needed to launch the service. So even though the current plans target business class users, the unanswered question is whether the fees will eventually apply to non-enterprise users. In other words, home users. Foley says that Microsoft refused to answer that question. a lot of books and as a result I have a lot of ebook readers on my various devices. There's the Kindle reader of course, the Nook reader is present on some devices, the Kobo reader, Adobe Acrobat naturally. The UB reader was my favorite for a while, but a few months ago I gave Amazon's Play reader a try and it is now the one I use most of the time. Some books do require the Kindle reader. And books from the library need to be read either on a Kindle device or reader or Adobe Digital Editions if the books have digital rights management enabled. But Playbooks is the easiest reader to use if you read books on a variety of devices. I use an Apple iPad most of the time and it's fine when I'm sitting in a chair. The iPad's a little heavy and cumbersome in the evening though when I'm reading after going to bed. That's when I pick up a Samsung Galaxy Tab, which is about the size and weight of a trade paperback book. Why the play reader? Well, if I stopped last night at page 51 on the tab, and then during the day read all the way to page 253 on the iPad, the Playbooks app will remind me about that when I open the book again on the Samsung device in the evening, and it'll offer to take me to the page that I read last on the other reader. It's a nice feature. I also like the fact that all of the books I use the Play Reader for are stored on a Google server. They're downloaded to the tablet when I'm reading them. But once I've completed the book, I can remove it from the device while leaving it on the server in case I want to read it again or use it to review something. Google likes this too, of course, because the app offers a way to buy books instantly online. The Play Reader app is also on the Google Project 5 phone that I have, an Android device. If I don't have either of the larger tablets with me and I feel like reading, I can always grab one of the stored books from the server and continue reading on the phone. Although I don't like ebooks for reference materials or educational materials, I found them generally to be more accommodating than paper books for one primary reason. If I need to look something up while using an ebook, I can do that without putting the book down, without grabbing a dictionary. 
The process varies slightly between Apple and Android versions of the Play Reader app, but checking the definition of a word consists of no more than selecting the word in the book and then tapping a dictionary symbol. Looking up a foreign term is a little bit more complicated. After marking the word or words, it's necessary to copy them to the buffer and then paste them into a browser. It's all too easy, particularly when reading fiction or nonfiction primarily for pleasure, to simply skip over unrecognized words by guessing at the meaning based on context. That can be a problem when the reader guesses wrong about a meaning, and being able to solve that problem instantly with an ebook reader is a good reason for using one. Some people like the weight, smell, and tactile sensation of holding a book while reading. I have to admit, I do miss those aspects, but the advantages of an ebook more than make up for what I'm missing. So if you're getting started with ebooks, download a good selection of readers and see which one works the best for you. There are no downloads involved in spare parts, but you'll find spare parts only on the website. This week, anyone who still wears a watch might be interested in a new one from Casio. And the company that acquired the Rand McNally name makes GPS devices and recently added a line of headphones for professional drivers. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.